We deserve a seat at the table. Um, there's no reason why we shouldn't have one. And when you sit down, you know, spread your elbows and make yourself comfortable. You belong there just like anybody else that is sitting at the table. Welcome to Latinx Can, a podcast showcasing Latinx professionals who turn their dreams into realities. I'm your host, La Doctora Janire Flores Delgado, and today I'm here with Eli Velasquez, co-founder of the Investors of Color Network, an ecosystem of Black and Latinx accredited investors working to close the racial funding gap. And he is here to tell you, si se puede, my friends, si se puede. Eli Velasquez, welcome to Latinx Scan. Awesome. It's great to be here. Thank you for having me. Well, thank you for your time. Uh, I think this is going to be very interesting and very informative. So let's start by talking about your story and where your story begins. Sure. So, you know, I'm originally from El Paso, Texas, a, a border town. Um, and I was born and raised there. My parents were educators, but they, much like many, uh, you know, Latino stories, they, they, they worked the fields growing up. You know, they had the struggle that, that a lot of people talked about and, They, they made their way through school and college and ultimately infusing those kind of uh, values in me and my brother. But growing up on the border, you know, in a binational community, um, seeing kind of the opportunities that people talked about, um, that people aspired to. But those are the, the, the values that, I, that my parents used to infuse is all those things are achievable, all those things are doable. But I really enjoyed, you know, growing up in El Paso, had, lot, had lots of family there. Uh, but ultimately, I, I did have aspirations to go out and explore the world. I grew up in a border town as well in Venezuela. Uh, my t it's a city on the border with Colombia. And I remember only, I mean, I'm sure that there was a lot of violence and things like that, like we see and we hear in the media about El Paso as well and, and all, all other border towns here in the U.S. But I remember it as being a very active borders on very active community and like my mom would take us every every school year and then at the end in December to buy clothes because it was more it was more affordable to do that what was your um pers perspective of growing up in El Paso because what we see in the media is mostly the negative stuff yeah and that, that's unfortunate you know because a lot of the the stories over the last 10 years or so has been largely focused on the violence in Juarez because of the, you know, the drug cartels. But, but you know, ironically, that doesn't spill over into El Paso. And, and if you really do the research, El Paso ranks amongst the top safest cities in the nation consistently. You know, it's either top two, three, four, or five. Um, and that, that doesn't get covered in the news. And so I always had this sense of, of safety. People don't have to lock their doors. You know, it's very family-oriented. Um, and it's very vibrant, right, because you do get a lot of this cross-border community, a lot of business, education, you know, um, art, music, food. And so the, the, the two communities come together and it feels like one in a lot of different areas. And unfortunately, some of the, the negative press 
can spill over, you know, into into the storyline of El Paso. And, and quite frankly, that's just simply not the case. Mm -hmm. The coverage of big cities, maybe like New York, it's also, it's, they also talk sometimes about violence, but it's not, it's never the main story. It's always like Main Street or Wall Street and like all the vibrant things that happen. But I lived in New York for a year and there's some places that are definitely reminiscent of the, of the worst shanty towns in Caracas, right? And so it's just not, not fair how those things get covered. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, you know, the city leaders and the and the young generation that's there is trying really hard to change the narrative. You know, there's a lot of new activities going on, a lot of focus on innovation, technology, music, you know, and you see kind of the generations that have left before come back to El Paso. And that's part of my story, too, that I, I left for several years, went to school, you know, built a career, and then came back and brought those professional expertise to help stand up new initiatives and new efforts in the town so that it doesn't, you know, stay stuck in kind of the old ways, but it starts to build its own storyline and starts to develop its own brand for being a very progressive city that's out there doing some really cool things. Like you would hear, you know, from LA or Austin or any of these other major metropolitan areas, you know, our, our aim was to really put, like people say, put El Paso on the map and make it yeah. known for really good things. Fantastic. I think, you know, the, you're well on your way to do that. And so you then went to, you said you had aspirations to go and see the world, right? And then you went to Boston University for a degree in mechanical engineering. And you went from a community that was 90, 80% Latinx to something a lot more diverse. What was that experience like for you? I, I, I you know, was born and raised in a, this community and We would take vacations to different parts of the country, but never to the East Coast. And I always had this desire to see what was happening in the Boston, New York area. And I had aspirations to go to MIT and, and Harvard and these schools that just seemed so, you know, austere to me. And I was able to get into Boston University, really, really great school. Uh, but showing up, I mean, there were kids there from over 100 countries, I believe. At the time, it was the most mm -hmm. diverse university in the world. And wow. I would I would hear languages and and see people and I literally had no clue where they were from, you know, and, <laughs> and so I, I would come up and ask them these different questions of where are you from and what do you do? And, and so it was very, very eye opening for me. I had a, a similar experience and in, in when I started, I went to an international school. And then after that, years later, when I, when I came back to the U.S., my favorite game is to try and guess where people are from based on their accents in English. <laughs> so I, I know they're from a different country because yep. they have an accent. But you can always kind of tell, you know, at, like the Venezuelan accent in English or something like that. Yeah. That, that and it also opened my eyes to being a lot more empathetic, right? And understanding people's different religious, you know, affiliations and cultures and whatnot. So it was, it was a really great experience for me. And then you made another sort of like drastic change because after um, you completed your undergrad, you then moved to the West Coast to work at Boeing, right? And you started as a mechanical engineer working at Boeing. And then eventually throughout your seven years of experience there, you transitioned to become a patent attorney. So can you tell us how you did that transition, how that happened? 
Yeah. So I always had an interest in law, you know, ever since I was a, a young kid and I always had the sense that I would wanted to go to law school, but I didn't really know what path I would take to get there. Initially, I thought when I graduated from Boston University, I would go to law school right afterwards, but I got presented with a good offer to work for the Boeing company. So upon taking that offer, I realized that I really liked engineering, but I really wanted to pursue law. And uh, Boeing luckily offered a tuition reimbursement program. So they, mm-hmm. they covered the tuition to go to basically any school you wanted to. Um, and so I decided to, you know, take advantage of that opportunity. And I started going to law school at night. So I would work during the day. I worked a full-time job. And then I would go to law school at night. And, and I really got sparked to go into a certain kind of law when during my senior year in college, I had a professor, he taught a a course called engineering economy. And it was talking about how to create startup businesses, how to take an Mm -hmm. idea and and turn it into a business. And that's where he first shared this notion of intellectual property law or patent law as a means that where a lot of engineering students and professionals transition into IP law. And so that that's what I decided to pursue in law school. So I got an IP certificate and then Boeing had just started a new business unit to look at and evaluate patents within the company. So I joined that team, you know, from engineering into law while I was still in law school. One thing that I find interesting is that I throughout my PhD, I never really heard too much about intellectual property until when maybe I was starting to apply for for jobs in in industry, right? And for industry, maybe in academia, it's not so prevalent to protect the IP because a lot of it is for research purposes. But for industries, it's a fundamental part of how they do business, right? Yeah, and, and, and you know, that, that's really an important component of, of how we get new ideas to market, right? And that's the intellectual property pathway. How are you going to protect that idea? And how are you going to create a business uh, around it? And that's the concept of technology commercialization. And that's becoming, you know, and has become over the last 30 years or so more commonplace with universities trying to mm. extract technology. So, you mm-hmm. know, one of the, the notable technology, Gatorade, right? That started at the University of Florida. That's a common one. Um, Google, right? Facebook. Yeah. These are all ones that started in, on college campuses. They have intellectual property protection that ultimately made it out mm. into the, the ecosystem. Velcro right? Velcro was, mm-hmm. was invented at NASA, and then that ultimately made it out into the private markets. So that, that's the, the place that for me, I thought really interesting was, how do we take somebody's idea and try to convert that into a business that gets out into the market? I went to school at UF, and I go. always found it interesting that I, I got to go to class where they invented Gatorade. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was fun. That's cool. Really cool. <laughs> it was good marketing from the university. <laughs> and, and, and to date, they still get a lot of royalties from that intellectual property. So the based off of sales, you know, I'll give you a quick example. Uh, a couple years ago, based on the, the IP and the patent rights, Google writes a check to Stanford for $100 million, right, oh, wow. for those that, that royalty relationship. And the same thing with University of Florida. Millions of dollars go back to the university, and that's why the universities and industry are trying to get their ideas out into the marketplace. Mm-hmm. Yeah, fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so you said that Boeing helped you pay for for your 
degree in law. And a lot of large companies have this tuition reimbursement process or benefit that they give their employees. However, I think I haven't gone through it, but I think you still have to sort of make a case for why the company would invest in your education. So do you have any advice as to maybe how to initiate those conversations with your manager and how to sort of build that business case so that you, you get that benefit from the company? Yeah, I, you know, ultimately, you want to start early and trying to um, really signal to your team, to your manager, that this is an area that you want to pursue. And you should have those discussions and document them, like in your performance goals and your performance mm-hmm. reviews, right? So that mm-hmm. it shows that you have an interest in a certain area in a certain space. And then two, you should also evaluate where the opportunities are within your organization to use that, that new skill set, right? Is it in a new mm. department? Is it as a manager? Um, is it through some other, you know, uh, project that, that might be available? And then you make a case for why that investment makes sense in you and what the expectation is from you back to the company if they make that investment, right? And so yeah. so my, my business proposition was, I wanna keep building intellectual property you know, opportunities for the company that can then generate revenues and we can commercialize them. And I can serve in that expertise of being an engineer who understands the technology and a lawyer who Mm -hmm. understands the law and bring Mm -hmm. those two skill sets together to benefit the bottom line of the company. Right. And so that was the, the business case that I was trying to make for the company. And I also said, look, for the investment that you're making, I'd like to commit, you know, 10, 20 years of my career to this organization Mm -hmm. So that mm-hmm. you have a, a loyal, you know, employee who continues to grow and you continue to invest in over the long term. Yeah, and I think this point that you made of documenting it on your performance reviews and things like that, I hadn't thought about it, but it, it seems key because then it, it really shows that you have been working towards this goal. Exactly. You know, you, you want to be able to track that every year. And if, if you face any sort of hiccups along the way, you can always go back and, and, you know, signal to that and say, well, look, here, here's what I'm trying to accomplish and here's the challenges I'm having or here's where the company has really supported me and here's some other areas where it can keep supporting me. And so it really builds your store, your career trajectory through that yeah. documented evidence of your performance reviews. I'm curious, when you started working at Boeing, you mentioned your parents were educators, but they, they have a humble beginning as well, maybe no, no experience in corporate America. Um, how did you find that environment? And how did you find ways to sort of learn the, the culture and the back ways of, of working in corporate America? Um, I, I actually credit a lot to my, to my parents because when I was a, a kid, right, whether it was in grade school or high school, they really encouraged me to get involved in a lot of different activities. You name it, right? Honor Society, Student Council, basketball, science fairs. I mean, you, you name it, we were involved in it. And, and through that, that helps you understand things like how to host meetings, how to develop agendas, mm-hmm. how to negotiate, right? How to push ideas forward, um, how to work with other people and, and, and having those different experiences, how to, how to work in a team. Having those different experiences over the course of time allowed me to feel very comfortable in a corporate setting, where it's, whether it's mm. a corporate boardroom, you know, or giving a presentation, you know, all of those things started very early on, mm-hmm. which were, were 
daunting, right? They were challenging, but you know, with a lot of encouragement, my parents would say, yeah, it could, it can be a little bit scary to give a presentation in front of a bunch of strangers for a science fair, but that same skill set is what you need, you know, 10 years later when you're giving a presentation in front of your managers, right? So those were the areas that I, and to this day, I still credit my, my parents and my dad for saying, Hey, thank you for pushing me to do those things because they they make me very comfortable now. I, I'm not afraid of them. That's great, and mm-hmm. and you can start. It shows how how we can just start early, right? And and we can motivate and encourage people from a very early age. Absolutely. And so then you returned to El Paso, like you said, right? You wanted to give back to your community and um, you had this new skills and perspective that you had gained from living in the two different coasts of the United States. And when you returned to El Paso, you were told that you were overqualified. Can you tell us what that experience was like and how you forged your own path in that new space? Yeah, that was really shocking because as when I lived in California, I would go back for the holidays and I kept seeing that the, the community was really starting to build. You could sense energy. There were more people coming back from different schools and they said, I want to give back to the community. And so I started fielding my resume with different groups and whatnot. And, and I met with a, with a, uh, one of the big law firms in, in town, a very notable law firm. And, uh, and he looked at my resume and he says, you want to do patent law? And I said, yeah. And he goes, we don't do that here. He goes, there's, there are no patent attorneys and you know, our people are not that creative and innovative. And I was extremely infuriated, right. To say the least. And at that point I said, no, th- we're going to prove this guy wrong. Um, and so I, I started doing some research and started identifying different individuals and organizations that were thinking about how to develop an inno- innovation economy in the community. And I linked up with them. And ultimately, what it came down to was starting something new, right? Because mm-hmm. it did not exist. So we had to start something new. Um, yeah. And so there was funding available. There was there was support available. Uh, you know, a small group of people came together and they said, we're going to start the first technology incubator in the region focused Mm -hmm. on, you know, commercializing technologies from the U S and from Mexico. And that was how I needed to get that started because it didn't seem like certain components of the community were ready for it. That basically was startup one-on-one, right? That was you with some, with some partners starting a business and you had some, now, I guess, knowledge of the intellectual property and then also technologies and innovation. Um, how about the business, the knowledge of how to start a business, how to run a business? Where do you get that from? That that just kind of has to come along the way, right? With you know, bumps and bruises and, and some folks say, you know, go get your MBA, and, you know, and, and that could be an opportunity and an option for some. I actually looked into that. Um, mm. But what I started learning was, you know, through law school, I learned a lot about how to start a business, form a business, the kind of business you should start, right? And then through our work with different partners, we started understanding what are the operational components of it? How do you manage and develop HR? You know, what are the different mm-hmm. elements of sales and distribution? And how do you develop a business plan? So that yeah. that came with working with different partners that helped infuse a lot of that knowledge and support the work that we were doing. Um, yeah. and, and the more that you do it, you know, the more you learn. And then eventually you start seeing that there's a pattern to all of it. Um, and then you start kind of doing it yourself. 
one of the things that I've learned from like I've had like four different jobs now, but my my first job was a rotational role in which I changed roles every eight months and then I switched to and and every time I switched to sort of like a different application of chemistry and then I realized that they throughout grad school the one thing that I learned was to how how to teach myself and just how to learn quickly and and those skills have helped me when I've moved to other careers like now I'm a marketing manager and I don't have an MBA I never studied marketing but I know that I have good communication skills and I also can teach myself and learn really fast so that's sort of what I have been able to leverage in order to get these other opportunities. Yeah, I mean, you, you you start, you know, going back to something I was saying earlier, was you start really interfacing with so many different people, right, that you start to kind of learn little bits here and there, and then you aggregate enough information and knowledge about certain topics and themes that then you are able to then start doing it. It's sort of like the see one, do one, right? Yeah, and then eventually yeah. you really find where your niche is, where you're most comfortable, and then you start building that expertise and then from there, you can look at it as, well, do you, should I go to school and study this more in depth or should I just kind of right. put it into practice, right? And, and there's no right, right or wrong answer, but right. it's really trying to find where else you can add skill set. Yeah, absolutely. When you returned to El Paso, that really marked the era in which you became immersed in the innovation ecosystem in various roles. And one of them was helping com commercialize those innovations by focusing on the funding side, right? And by performing these roles, you have immersed yourself in various networks of investors, some of which are mostly white people and some which are diverse groups, right? And the way that these people sort of support each other is um, one factor that contributes to the funding gap in investments. And as a community in the Latinx community, we have some maybe cultural challenges that, that we need to address in order to really make uh, systemic change in the systems. Can you maybe talk a little bit about, you know, how the, what are the differences in, in some of those challenges that we should make an effort to address? Yeah, and in large part, you know, when we start looking at the investor side, you know, it is a predominantly white male dominated industry, right? Whether it's angel investors, venture industry, private equity, banking, you know, and, and that goes back decades. And you can study the long history of, you know, what, how those systems were implemented way, way back in the day. And, mm -hmm. and so it left literally legally, in many cases, people of color out of the opportunities to right. get into the financial ecosystems, right? And so what we're, what we are facing now is, that trying to change that systemic challenge of how do we get more investors of color into the into the game. And mm -hmm. so for for many years, and this has been one of the barriers, has been you have to have a certain net worth, you have to have a certain income mm -hmm. requirement, you have to have certain assets under your you have to have certain degrees, right? You have to have yeah. certain certifications. So all these different barriers to entry have kept, you know, Latinos out of the equation. You know, you saw that transcend down into the next phase where those investors that are predominantly white are going to invest in people that look like them and think like them. So then it right. perpetuates, right, this, this, this generational wealth um, that, again, excludes people of color. And so what, what we are trying to do now is trying to change those systems and even create new systems 
that enable more people of color to get into the investing space, right? So we are actively looking to change legislation, actively looking to change policy, trying to mm-hmm. lower, trying to design investment models that get more people involved in the game, creating educational programs where people can understand that you don't have to be super wealthy, you don't have to have a yacht, and you don't have to be a member of a country mm-hmm. club to be an investor. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the mentalities that's very scary for Latinos specifically is that we don't ask. Right. We are taught not to ask for things. Right. How Mm -hmm. many times would you go to your neighbor's house and you wanted a extra food or a a glass of water or a glass of soda? And your parents would say, don't ask like what you have is good enough. Right. And so we're we're taught that scarcity mentality and we're taught not Mm -hmm. to ask for things. And so when it comes time to asking for money fundraising, you know, support, mm-hmm. we tend to not ask. And a, and a good uh, investor mentor of mine said, Eli, whatever, whatever funding you're looking for, always add an extra zero behind it. Right. <laughs> and that, that mentality is different, mm-hmm. right? Because he says, mm-hmm. your white counterparts are doing exactly that. They're asking mm-hmm. for 10 X, hundred X, what you're asking for, and they're getting it. So we really have to have a paradigm shift around how we think about what, how we make our ask and make our ask very big because the opportunity mm. is there, right? And, and even if they say no to that, 10, that 100x ask, you might just end up with your 10x ask, right? Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. And like one of the things that we discussed was, you know, um, sometimes with this scarcity mentality, we we tend to guard resources and and not support each other and not share them because we're sort of scared that it's it's just going to disappear, right? But um, the white community does it differently, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time in Silicon Valley traveling and meeting people and. You know, the, the, the number one question that people always ask when you meet them, even if it's for the first time, is how can I be helpful? You will hear mm-hmm. that every single time that you're out there. And, and, and that same mentality should transcend into our community so that mm-hmm. we pay it forward, right? And, you know, we should not be the kind of individual that closes the door behind them if we have mm-hmm. a little bit of success. But we should mm-hmm. turn back and, and share the knowledge and then share the opportunity because there is a lot more to, 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 to go around. There's significantly much more resources to go around. Uh, mm. When you think about like the power that we have as Latinos, we make up about 18, 19% of the population. Our consumer buying power is almost $3 trillion, you know? And so, so we have a lot of say in where a lot of this money goes. Um, and so we have to find a way to, you know, put our guard down find ways to not be competitive, not race for headlines, but really try to find ways to say, what does this next generation going to look like? And how can I help them not make the same mistakes I made? And equally as important, share my network, right? Because we tend to hoard who we know, right? And say, well, this is the, if I, if I introduce them to you, then, then they're going to go around me. They're not right. They're not ultimately people want the win-win if you add value, you're going to stay connected with all of that. And so I think we, we need to be a lot less guarded and a lot more open to helping each other out. Yeah, and I, I think that's fascinating because it's similar to what um, I as a woman have heard in in this you know movement of women in STEM, for example, in that we have a huge problem in corporate America with female leaders and 
for a really long time, it happened that, you know, when one woman made it to the CEO or to the C-suite, they'd be like, okay, this is it. I have a seat at the table and I'm just going to keep it for myself because uh, I can't allow anybody else to take it. But how about we just make more seats, right? It's not just one person. Yeah, that's exactly it. You know, when I look at, um, you know, the work that I'm doing now, there's a, we'll see a really good investment opportunity. And, and they'll say, okay, but it's only, uh, it's only um, has a million dollars left, so to speak. And so then the company goes out and raises a million dollars. And then you start seeing, but this other individual wants to get in. Okay, we'll make room for them. And so they mm -hmm. make room for those, those individuals to get in the game. And that's the kind of mentality that we need to have as well is not being so focused on the scarcity, but saying, look, we can find a way to make room so that you get in as well and, and not, not leaving people out. You know, I think that's one of the biggest mindset shifts that has to happen for our community to really, really move the needle. Yeah, I love it. And we're fighting for inclusion, right? It just means including people or in, uh, in opportunities as well. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we deserve a seat at the table. Um, there's no reason why we shouldn't have one. Um, and when you sit down, you know, spread your elbows and make yourself comfortable. You belong there just like yeah. anybody else that is sitting at the table. I love it. Yeah. And so now you're a managing partner at the Investors of Color Network. And it's an ecosystem of Black and Latinx accredited investors and allies across the U.S. that are working to close the racial funding gap in startup capital. Um, I recently started learning more about angel investors and the impact that I could have in my community if I if I'm able to invest, uh, but I see it as a future goal because I don't think I have enough assets to be a qualified angel investor. Now, talking to you, I've learned that there are many other options to start investing. Can you give us your perspective regarding what we can start doing now and when we are thinking about investing and what are the things that we should think about, especially at an earlier stage of our career where, when our earnings are still modest? Yeah, and, and this is the advice I would give to my you know, 22-year-old self um, is, is really going back and understanding that if I have a a decent job, right? And I'm making okay money. Uh, the idea is not to go out and buy toys. The idea is not to go out and buy all sorts of things that are going to make me feel emotionally better, right? And mm -hmm. make me compete. But the idea is to really look at the different forms of using my money so that one, I live within my means or below my means, right? So that I have mm -hmm. a little bit extra to work with and then understand where I can start making investments, right? And that can be something as simple as your as your 401k. That could be, you know, um, getting into equity crowdfunding. That can mm -hmm. get into how do I start doing some of the savings elements, right? You can you can start working in the stock market and understanding that your money that you put to work 10, 20 years ago or now will have impact 10, 20 years from now, right? Mm -hmm. If you just let it start working. Um, and many times, you know, we were not taught like how to really manage money. We were not talk about invest and talk about investments. We did not learn that if you put your money to work, it starts to exponentially grow mm -hmm. and then it starts to work mm -hmm. for you. 
right? We yeah. weren't we weren't taught those things, and so a big part of you know your early career is is really getting more knowledge around managing money, and ultimately that that's what I tell people is. They're like, oh, investing is like Shark Tank. I said, it's not. Investing is not like Shark Tank. Investing is about managing money. And if mm-hmm. you get good at managing money, then you can become good at investing, right? And that's ultimately what it comes down to is understanding what all that means. Like, I'm I'm just being very honest. I don't really know anything about these things. And the only things that I know now where to invest is our more my 401k uh, because I get that benefit from my company and um, a Roth IRA. But mm-hmm. as an immigrant, for example, as a student that was on an international student visa in grad school, I didn't know where I could put some money aside for investment, right? And I only learned about having a safety net or investing in my 401k in grad school when I was already like 26 years old. So can you walk us through maybe what these different options um, are and how we can get our feet in the door? Yeah, so so one of the areas that that again I, I was never taught this, but I had to learn it over the course of just working with lots of different investors. What has been when you look at you know what you make and you put yourself on a really good, decent, reasonable budget, right? You're living within or below your means. You have your savings, you know, kind of established and going. Then there's that little bit extra, right? And there's what people say is like 10% of whatever is left over on that saving side can be used for investing. Um, as long as if you lose that 10%, it's not going to like severely hinder you, right? It's not going to severely mm-hmm. hinder your, your living, you know, your standard of living. So you, you might need to spend a little bit of time building that up over time mm-hmm. and then say, mm-hmm. okay, I can work with. right? How how do I want to spend that money over the course of the next year, right? So if you say, if I can do, let's just say $5,000 a year over the next five years, that's $25,000 that I have Mm -hmm. in my investment kind of like kitty, right? Mm -hmm. So where do I want to start looking? Well, you can start by evaluating stocks, right? And and figuring out how you want to get into investing in stocks. And there's different apps out there that, that help you get into the game. There's crowdfunding, right? And crowdfunding allows you to make small investments as small as $100 into startup companies that are raising, you know, they could be raising $100,000 or $200,000. But aggregate amongst all these different individuals, your hundred thousand gives you a little piece of, of mm-hmm. ownership in that company, right? Mm-hmm. So now you have a hundred dollars there, right? And then little by little, you start building that expertise of looking at companies, right? And analyzing what the returns are on your investments to the point where it keeps growing, where you say, okay, my $25,000 after five years returned what? Two X, right? Or one and a half X. Right. Mm-hmm. And so now you have an extra ten or twenty thousand dollars to play with. And now what are you gonna do with that money? Right. And so that just sort of continues to snowball um, as you grow. And within 10 years, right? Within 10 years, now you're in this position where you're saying, Okay, now I wanna get into some more advanced deals. How do I start getting into angel investing where one check, you know, goes five thousand dollars into one company? Right. Mm-hmm. And another 5,000 goes into another company, another 5,000. 
And that's how you can kind of start getting into it. But you have to start again with figuring out how you're going to manage your money. Excellent. I love that. You have homework to do. (laughs) (laughs) And one other thing that you really advocate for is to have an investor's thesis. What is that about and how, how can we start building one? Yeah. So the, the investment thesis is, is what, it, what it comes down to is what you think is important that enough to you that you want to invest in and hold yourself accountable to invest in, right? Because mm-hmm. as you start looking at other opportunities, you're going to start seeing that they get like nice and shiny and you want to go pursue them. But your investment thesis keeps you disciplined to stay within your lane, right? And that lane should really be something that you're knowledge about, knowledgeable about, mm-hmm. right? Whether it's something that you studied in school or the career that you're in or something that you know very personally, you know, is near and dear to your heart. And so when those kind of opportunities arise, you have the kind of the knowledge base to ask the right questions, right? And understand where the markets are going, understand what the team should look like, understand if there's a technology or, or like the secret sauce, right, to that mm-hmm. company. So it makes you a very smart investor, right? And so mm-hmm. the thesis should be designed around that. So for, for the Investors of Color Network, we invest in business models that, that advance the health, wealth, and social mobility of people of color, right? So mm-hmm. it's got to fit within those areas. Then we get into technology sectors like ed tech, fintech, health tech, sports and media. So if it fits those 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 sectors, then we have our impact thesis aligned with our investment thesis, and that's how we mm-hmm. stay within our lane. So if somebody comes to me with some company for apparel, I'll say that doesn't fit our investment thesis, but thank you uh, for bringing that to me. And it does a service to the entrepreneur because they now know where, to, where they can engage with you and a service to other like-minded investors to join forces with you. Yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't heard of it, but it, it, it makes a lot of sense, right? It, because there's so many shiny objects in the market. Yep, yep. And it, we, you know, a lot of them look really interesting and, you know, you want to get in and you, you may not want to miss. And there, there will be opportunities, right? If you want to say, look, but I also want to be opportunistic. But even again, you'll say, but I'll only risk 5% of my portfolio on opportunistic investment deals, right? Mm-hmm. And so that, again, that, that just keeps you aligned and, and focused on where you want to start building your companies. And I, I will say one more thing that, you know, for angel investing, right, people that are investing their own money, it takes about 30 companies before you start really seeing returns, right? So you really have mm-hmm. to look at this in the long term that it's not a one, you know, one lottery ticket, like, oh, that's a great company. I'm going to put all my chips into that. It's more about what's my portfolio approach to invest in 30 opportunities over the next two or three years. And I have a question, more of a curious question. So how does one become part of the Investors of Color Network, for example? Yeah, so in, in this particular case, because of the way the laws are structured, um, you know, that the, the people that are members have to be accredited investors. And what that means is the Securities and Exchange Commission, the SEC, has defined what an accredited investor is. So that's an individual who either has an annual income of $200,000 or $300,000 with a partner or a million dollars of net worth, not including their, their home. 
So that that's a that's a pretty high bar for mm-hmm. for an accredited investor. Now, one of the things that we're working with the SEC is to kind of add another definition, which they have, that says, or has to be certified and understands the risks of early stage investing. And that certification process is still not clear, right? Mm-hmm. The SEC is still trying to figure out, should it be like an exam? Should it be something that you go uh-huh. to a school for? Should it be should it be like a financial certification? Can it be a law degree? So they still haven't defined what that certification requirement is. But once they do, it's going to open the door for a lot more people who don't meet the monetary requirements to start getting in the game, get the certification, and then start start figuring out how to get investor how to get into the investing space. So I have one more question, and it's sort of like a fun one, right? Um, so imagine a friend of yours comes to visit you in your city, and you want to show them around, but you're not you're not available. You know, so you tell them top three things or places to go that are your favorite places in your city so that they can at least get a sort of a, a glimpse of what you would show them if you were there. Awesome. So, so I'm, I'm in Massachusetts. I'm, I'm not too far from Boston. Um, so this one's pretty easy and I can name you more than, more than three easily. Fantastic. So you, you, you definitely want to go to uh, Faneuil Hall and in Quincy market. So they have food from all over the world there. Uh, you want to go to the North end. That's the Italian district. Um, and that, that's got great food, you know, and so you definitely should go there with your appetite. You should go to the Esplanade, which is basically the, the walkway along the Charles River. And that gives mm-hmm. you beautiful scenes of both Boston and also of MIT and Harvard and yeah. Boston University. Um, and then you should also go into, um, do like, do like all of the historical tours, right? To see the, the old North Church, the South Church, you know, Paul Revere. Um, like all of the all of the the touring sites that that the uh, that Boston has to offer, so you you would not be uh, bored, you know, if I wasn't yeah. here and you had to come into Boston. I did one time went to uh, Boston in December. I think that's the longest I've been there. I was maybe there for a week or so, and it was so cold. But I did manage to go out there and walk. I, I wanted to do this attraction that was. Mm, it was like a walking tour through all the historical sites. Yep. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Man, and, it, and it does get cold. So you figure out what time of year you want to come also. I mean, right now the, the leaves are changing. It looks beautiful. Fall is a great time to come. But then after that, you might want to wait till like April or May. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Eli, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Thank you for listening. If you want to put a face to the voices you just heard, follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at LatinxScan. If you have questions or feedback, you can email us at latinxscan at gmail.com. And if you want to support our project, please leave a review. We have made it easy for you and added the links to the show notes. That's it for now. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button. And remember, unidos somos más. Thank you.